a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. This is Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Talking about a live show, there's really no livelier guest we could get than Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, Dahlia has been the uh, senior uh, editor at uh, Slate for almost 20 years. She writes the Supreme Court and jurisprudence column. She does a terrific bi-weekly podcast uh, on the Supreme Court. Uh, Dahlia, I have this, uh, these pages in front of me because they're filled with your achievements of the kind of awards you've won. I'll just mention a few uh, elected to the Academy of Arts and Sciences, first online journalist to win a National Magazine Award. You're working on a book, Lady Justice. A little too early for people to reserve it on Amazon, though. But welcome to Stanford Legal and it's great, you know, when you're a faculty member and a former student does such magnificent work, it gives everybody a great feeling. So I think everybody here is uh, avid readers, and I bet everyone in our audience is. Thank you uh, to Joe and to Pam and to Stanford for inviting me back and all of you alumni weekenders. And, um, you know, one fears a little bit that one is going to come back to an event like this and the locks will have been changed and they'll be like, oh, this isn't Stanford anymore. That's, you know, we moved it uh, so that you would not come into the building. So it's um, it's lovely uh, to be back. And I, I believe I took evidence uh, in this very classroom, but I am really like covered in goosebumps and sweat just from being back uh, right in this room. Uh, but thank you, nevertheless, for not changing the locks. Well, it's great to have you back. There have been changes at the law school, and I think many of you who've come back have noticed what a great building it is. I was having breakfast with an alum this morning who said that the building looks like if the Four Seasons Maui had a law school, this would be it. <laughs> um, so uh, it's, it's fantastic to have you here, and it's fantastic to have Dahlia. Uh, I read everything you, you write religiously because I love it, and I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about how you cover the court. and. I want to start with a, a, a brief passage from uh, one of Dahlia's columns earlier this year. It was a column where she was uh, writing about a vote purge case and what could be more apropos right now than talking about vote purging. But what she said there was she was kind of talking back, referring back to a gerrymandering case earlier in the term. And she said, you know, one of the things that happened there was the chief justice criticized the lawyers for uh, trying to come up with a, con a, a formula for dealing with political gerrymandering that he called sociological gobbledygook. And then she said, the mild-mannered sociologists went, went wild, and it was widely agreed that dismissing other fields of inquiry as gobbledygook is not generally good for lawyers. <laughs> and then she went on to describe the case in front of the court, and she said, Wednesday morning at oral argument in the other monster voting rights case of 2018, this actual statement was offered by a lawyer. It's a rule, and now this is the statement from the transcript. It's a rule of clarification. So it says you have to construe B2, and I think with that, combined with the solely clause, make quite clear you have to interpret by the by reason of language in some other way to break the causal link between voting and removal that is required in D. And then she said, so yes, lawyers should eschew accusing other professor, professionals of gobbledygook. <laughs> One of the things that is so wonderful about your writing is the way in which you explain very complicated cases in language that's not only 
precise enough for the lawyers to think you're getting the content right, but readable enough for other people. And I just wonder how you go about doing that. For a very long time when I started covering the court, and I, I really started covering the court, I finished law school, I clerked, uh, I worked at a divorce firm for a couple of years. I suddenly was parked in the court and I had no idea what was going on in there. And I was the first online journalist in there. Years later, one of the press officers said, oh, we used to call you the barbarian at the gate <laughs> behind your back because I just sort of stumbled in and I didn't know things. And I think I quickly just realized that I could pretend to know things or I could just be okay being the science reporter who explains to people who don't know things that, you know, I'm kind of trying to figure this out too. And I think that I was coming in at a time where much more so 20 years ago than now, uh, the press corps was very, very um, self-mystifying. It was, you know, the, the, the US Supreme Court press corps thought of themselves as sort of baby con law professors. And they really wanted to be, you know, sort of imbued with the gravitas that, you know, the, the Larry Tribes and the Kathleen Sullivans uh, imbued on their own, you know, like this is what matters, doctrine. And I came into the court and I was just like, well, I'm not a con law professor. I'm not even a baby con law professor. Uh, but what I can do is try to imagine my dad, who's an econ professor and doesn't understand, you know, what Article 4 means, but like, or, you know, Article 3 means, or any of the articles, or really the Constitution, if I can just put myself in his shoes. That's and, not because you're Canadian. Well, it is. That's exactly why. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't, the articles mean nothing to him, uh, and including my articles. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think that I just made myself really comfortable with not being kind of all-knowing. As a consequence, if something struck me as like, this is hard, or this is tricky, or you know, I don't know the law of the sea, uh, and I can't teach it to myself in an hour, I will just be the person who asks the questions and says, you know, I'm going to be a little bit humble about my knowledge. So, so sometimes one of the things I love about your columns is the way that you focus on the dynamic of the argument in the courtroom. And in the course of doing that, you sort of slip in some really important and substantive points. And it's kind of like when you put your dog's pill inside of a piece of liver, <laughs> isn't there? And my favorite column of all of your columns, and I, there are so many great ones, it's hard to come up with a favorite, but my favorite one was, uh, Dahlia wrote a column about the oral argument in a case called FCC against AT&T that involved an exemption under the Freedom of Information Act that said that certain kinds of personal information would not be turned over. Uh, and she wrote the entire column from the perspective as if AT&T were a person. It was called Reach Out and Touch Someone. <laughs> and, and the column ended this way. She said, AT&T seems to understand that somewhere along the line, he has lost the confidence of the Chief Justice. Maybe he isn't a real person capable of dignity and shame and other strong emotions after all. Maybe if you prick him, he does not bleed. If you tickle him, he does not laugh. If you poison him, well, AT&T rises to leave the room, but he suddenly finds that he has no legs to stand on. <laughs> and what I loved about this column is it, is it is screamingly funny. You should all go back and read it. But at the same time, it makes a really important point about how the Supreme Court has begun to treat corporate personhood. 
that in a variety of contexts it's done this. And so that's one of the reasons it's my favorite column is because I laugh, I cry, it was better than cats, and at the end I'm thinking about something. What was your favorite column? I, or is know, this like your sons? They're, yeah, you, no, I, oh, I have totally have a all. favorite son. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, joking. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't have a favorite. I, I do, I, I mean, there was one column I remember doing where I imagined if each justice was a dog, what kind of dog they would be. Um, you know, I think what I always just felt was that I could either go in and do it's straight for the for the law wonks, or I could go in and do it for my next door neighbor and the moms at the bus stop, who tended to say overwhelmingly, like I just don't read you because I don't understand. And so I think you know my the the, the ones like that where I tried to make some larger point and also say you know the Hobby Lobby case is coming, the court's going to take seriously the argument that the Green family you know as a family somehow imbues their corporation with religion, uh, I wanted to make that point. And I think, you know, often um, when I do it, I mean, I feel like underlying the question is, you know, humor is a really good, like if you're gonna put the pill in liver, let the liver be comedy. Because I think humor is a really good disarming way in. And I think that people, you know, A, want to be amused, and B, I think they will, having something reframed is always good. And also I think Freud you know, was quick to say humor is kind of a shock. And I think that if you can try to say, I'm going to take Pox Law Professors, like one of the most boring institutions, and try to shock you into thinking about it in a different way, then more people might feel like they have some skin in this game. And so I think that was the animating, both there and in some of you know, the dog columns and some of the um, crazy. I've, I've definitely gotten a little grumpy in my old age. There's much less um, jazz hands uh, than there was at that period. But I, I do think that like shocking people into, hey, I, I get the principle and I could come to care about this, even if I'm not a lawyer, was always the animating value. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Dahlia Lithwick about the Supreme Court. Joe? I wanted to bring up a kind of a Debbie Downer subject here, but it's a much different way of getting someone's attention. And it was a column you wrote last year that I found gave such a nuanced portrait of what it's like live in a little bit of an abusive relationship. And the name of the column is something like Judge Alex Kaczynski made us all victims and accomplices. And it starts with this stunning story, a personal story, of you calling up somebody in his chambers. You're a law clerk. You're working for a judge somewhere, and you have a friend there. The judge picks up the phone, asks you like who you are, finds you in a hotel room, and asks, what are you wearing? And the story proceeds with boundary crossing after boundary crossing over the years. And I wonder if you'd be willing to just share one of those with our listeners instead of me describing it. I, I mean, I was, um, you know, that, that story was later construed as me, me tooing Judge Kaczynski. Um, and I did, in that piece, you know, disclose secrets that I had kept for, for two decades. Um, but to me, I thought that the, the reason I wrote that piece, 
And I think my regret about that piece is it got, when it got picked up on Twitter, it was dialithwick me too, Alex Kaczynski, and that was never the point. The point for me was, you know, your initial point, which was, this was a piece about systems and how systems construct the need for secrecy and complicity so that everybody knew, and I still maintain that many, many, many people knew what had happened, and everybody kept a secret. And to me, I think, you know, and I've really struggled, um, writing that piece was, uh, I, I later said um, when it posted, I feel like I just wrote the first line of my obituary. Like that piece is gonna be the thing that people remember, and I never wanted to write that piece. Um, but I think for me, what, what got lost in that piece was the part of the piece that said, all of my co-clerks knew, everybody at the Ninth Circuit knew, other judges knew, and this was, there was something about this profession and the rewards and the power relationships um, that preclude coming forward. And to me, I wish that that, in some sense, had, had been the salient component of that because I think that those systems that reward sort of even low level sort of just buzzing predation that goes on for decades and the ways in which it is just too easy to say alternatively, oh, the one bad apple is gone and so the system is fixed or, you know, I don't need to say anything because someone else said something. I think that we really won't have massive, massive change in our systems, particularly the sort of moribund, small c conservative systems, until we can figure out why there is such an enormous uh, incentive to keep secrets, even after everybody knows. So I, I, that's totally unresponsive, and I'm sorry. But no, I, I, think that's, I, th yeah. I think that's very responsive to the question, and some of what I think a lot of us have been thinking about is how do we instill in our students who are lawyers some idea of when do you step forward uh, and how do you balance, because I think you, you've mentioned that since then you've talked to people who've said, I still don't want to say anything about this because even though I'm 10 years into my career or seven years into my career or whatever, I worry that this will somehow come back to haunt me. How do we instill in people the sense that part of what it means to be a professional is to step forward under circumstances like this. So I feel like, Pam, I feel like you and I have talked about this offline, but I think one of the worries I have about Me Too, and I say this having talked to you know, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey at the Times, who, who did the Harvey Weinstein story, and um, you know, Irene Carmone, who did the Charlie Rose story, all of the journalists I know who are doing these pieces I think have a similar anxiety, and the anxiety is that journalism is not a fact-finding process. It is not, at the end of the day, an adjudicative process. It is a process whereby, and there's good things about that and bad, just a whole lot of stuff gets smoked out that are secrets that people are keeping. And functionally, I think that's what Me Too has been. It has been journalism stepping into industries that regulate themselves with NDAs and with you know, a million sort of workarounds for the frequently men uh, at the top, and then regulate the possibility of secrets coming out through these sort of contracts. And journalism comes in and says, okay, well, if you know, she can't talk and she can't talk and she can't talk, journalism will fix it. 
And I think that we put a lot of weight on journalism to fix systems that are not fixing themselves. And I think one of the things that law students need to understand is that Me Too actually represents a failure of systems. It's a huge success of journalism, and there's nobody who's a more bullish advocate of a free press than I am. But if systems were regulating themselves correctly, Me Too wouldn't be happening. And I think one of the things when students come to me and they say, I want to tell you something that happened to me, which now is my life uh, in the past year, my response is, I'm happy to write. I'm happy to do this. I will work with you. But also, like, what are we doing to fix the system that you operate in? Because if journalism is doing this, the next girl is on the hook, too. And so I think part of it's such a fraught question, Pam, but for me, part of the job is to both say to students, you have a responsibility to be you know, fixing this, not just by coming forward, but by helping us understand systemically why these things are still happening. And that's a lot to ask of a law student, um, but that's a little bit my, my present inclination, is that I, I find that when I say, Journalism is not an adjudicative process. People get very mad because it's the only process out there for a lot of them. But that's a failure of other systems. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with Dahlia Lithwick from Slate Magazine about the Supreme Court, complicity, Me Too, and just about everything else. Joe? Dahlia, what would you, I, I take the point that you should work within the system first. Journalism is kind of a last resort. It's kind of a blunderbuss. It's going to smoke things out, but it's not going to do it in a nuanced fashion necessarily. And you can't control things once they get out. Let's go back to a situation where you see these boundary crossings. What can you imagine? And, and this doesn't have to be fixated on Me Too harassment. I view this as a general ethical quandary because you could be a corporate lawyer. Pam and I interviewed the author of Bad Blood about the Theranos mm -hmm. uh, debacle. And that has nothing to do with sexual harassment, but it had a lot of people wondering, what's the right thing for me to do and when? So what might someone have done in, say, with Kaczynski within the system that would have been better earlier? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I, you know, I was one of the people, I think I said this in my piece, who reported contemporaneously at the time, you know, and I think, um, you know, Heidi Bond, for instance, who was yeah. the first person who came on the record to talk about him, literally made herself crazy trying to talk to, you know, the Second Circuit about, is there some way I can be absolved of my confidentiality agreement? That was her concern, that she was violating a confidentiality agreement she had signed in chambers. And that was her concern. So I think one of the things that needs to happen, and it's really hard, is for the system to say, and when I say the system, I realize that's just a like, completely fatuous shorthand. But for these systems to say, what are we doing that is precluding people from coming forward? And if it's the, you know, the confidentiality clause, and, and to this degree, I think you know, John Roberts has taken, you know, post Alex Kaczynski, has taken it quite seriously that reforms need to happen uh, and in you know, the entire Article III system. And I think has been, you know, and, and Judge McEwen uh, here at the Ninth has done 
serious work on this, but I think you know one of the things that has to happen is understanding how these power situations come to be so asymmetrical that somebody will endure anything or will witness anything and not uh, report. And I think that requires asking questions like, what, are the, what is the scope of our confidentiality? I mean, now the, the, the new uh, clerk handbook says, you absolutely don't have a duty of confidentiality if this is about you know, harassment or abuse. But that was not made clear until 2018. So I think some of these things really are going to require you know, a deep look at, and, and I think you know, there's a way in which, you know, again, I think each of us who's done a Me Too story has done it in the silo of our profession. So for me, all I've looked at is the judiciary and big law. And then you talk to folks in Hollywood or you know, in the media uh, who are having their own Me Too's, and everybody thinks their own is like particularly noxious and crazy. But I do think one of the things that's just fascinating about the federal judiciary is the degree to which judges are just adorably checked out about everything. And they really somehow believe that everyone in the world is issued like three sock-footed minions who will do everything for them. And that that's just life. And, you know, so then they'll say things like, well, am I allowed to ask my clerks, you know, to get me coffee as though that's a me too problem? Like that's a very different problem and we should talk about that. But I think one of the things I've just noticed is the ways in which you know, for a federal judge to say, no, we're a family. We're a family and everything is okay because we're a family. And you want to just be like, dear God, we're a family is like the problem because families are crazy. And, um, you know, like it doesn't, that's not the solution. Uh, so I think that there's a way in which we just have to really debunk some of the stories we tell ourselves in the law about how law firms work, about how power, for, power works, about how law school and access and, and power works. And I think that that's, I hate that. I mean, there's nobody who hates talking about the pernicious nature of the clerkship insanity more than me because I benefited from it. But it's kind of nuts. And you know, when you talk about family, Dahlia, and privileged family, that kind of leads us into one of the big topics that people are wondering about. How about the most exalted family up there, which is a family of nine? And we've got some new members there. And, so I'm told. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we've got two new br yeah. two new brothers, and we've got an uncle who took a powder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior correspondent for Slate Magazine, uh, about her columns and about the courts. Um, I, I want to turn us now to that to that court um, and uh, ask you a couple of questions about where we are now. Um, and I guess the, the starting point is to kind of ask, you know, Justice White was famous for saying that every time a new member of the court joined the court, it was a different court. How different do you think the court is going forward from where it was, say, before the momentous year of 2018 happened? Uh, I mean, it's different in every single way. And at the m micro level, right, you have one of nine new justices who has come on, and everything is different for the reasons that Justice uh, white would intimate. You know, the entire institution is constructed around these nine people having relationships 
and that has changed. And then I think when you pan out, this is the first court in my lifetime without a swing voter. There will be zero swing voter on the Supreme Court. That's completely new. Uh, John Roberts is, you know, functionally at the center of the court. And if you look at his record, uh, I don't think he's sort of in play on the issues that Anthony Kennedy was in play about. And what that means is, and this is really hard for us to understand, because for all of our lives, you know, before it was Kennedy, it was O'Connor. There was always a person at the middle, and that's now gone. And I don't even think sort of psychologically, we have figured out what that's gonna look like. I think that the interesting question is gonna be, you know, whether this institution, which again, we forget, we think it's so unbelievably powerful, but at the end, right, neither the purse nor the sword, it has no authority to do anything other than hope that the people keep the faith, and that's a terrifying posture. And so what is going to be new, I think, at the US Supreme Court is John Roberts managing public confidence. And that's going to be his job. That's going to be the thing that when he wakes up in the morning and he's flossing, he's going to be thinking how, and trust me, I'm sure he's a good flosser, but he's going to be thinking, how do I keep this court from plummeting in public confidence? How do I keep it off page A1 of the newspaper for the foreseeable future? We haven't, not since we had the 4-4 court after Justice Scalia died, seen a court that is this anxious about its own public perception, and that's interesting. You know, uh, I think for our, this show, we've kind of introduced really the topic for what's going to be our following show on Stanford Legal, whereas what does it mean not to have a swing voter? And what does it mean to be anxious about the future? And I'm going to also be wondering about how each of you is seeing this court after what for some people is really the trauma of the Kavanaugh hearings. So thank you for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121.